morning, everybody, and thank you for the invitation to speak to you this morning. I'm, I'm going to try to say a bit about what uh, I take business ethics to be, and also to defend it a little bit from some of the more common uh, objections that people make to the very idea of business ethics. Uh, but because of the context, I thought we should start by thinking a bit about reputation. Uh, and as a philosopher, we always have to uh, define our terms before we start. So I started thinking about what I took reputation to, to be. Uh, and it seems to me uh, it consists that in your standing in the eyes of others. That's what reputation is. I don't think it can be a self-reflexive idea. It involves a relationship between, between at least two two individuals or two groups. And, well, that raises the question of what's, what's standing is, and it's beliefs, I think. It's beliefs about uh, the individual with the reputation. Now, when we're thinking about uh, a business or a corporation, whose beliefs matter when we're thinking about reputation? Well, I think there are quite a few groups that, whose beliefs could matter. The employees might have a view on the corporation that they, they work for. Potential employees, right, applicants for jobs, uh, might have views on reputation. Customers and potential customers, regulators, politicians, the world at large. So that's one important question. Whose beliefs matter when it comes to reputation? And the second important question is, what are those beliefs about? What's the, what's the scope of reputation? Because clearly one can have a reputation for all sorts of things. Reputation can be good or bad, and it can be about all sorts of things. And in the context of many corporations, I would have thought three important areas are going to be the products or the services provided by the corporation. Yeah. What sort of quality do they exemplify? Do they have a reputation for a high price or low price? Good value, bad value? There can also be beliefs about the, uh, the non-ethical nature of the corporation itself. So, for example, is it an efficient corporation? That seems to be a non-ethical question to me. It's almost an empirical question. What's its organisational strategy? What's its vision? And then, of course, there's a reputation for uh, ethical character. Is the, is the, uh, the organisation one of integrity, uh, honesty, transparency? And of course, there are going to be overlaps between these different spheres. So, for example, uh, you might think it's a moral quality of a corporation that it's seen as, as being a good employer. And to some extent, that's going to, to overlap with with aspects of um, uh, that come under my second heading, the non-ethical nature. And when it comes to reputation, one question that some corporations are going to be confronted with, is it worth sacrificing elements of our ethical reputation, that was my heading three, for enhancements in our reputation under one or two? Or indeed for other reasons, for example, profit. Another question is going to be, if, if we have a justified 
ethical reputation. They're quite thought of as, as constituting a, a, a morally worthy corporation. Is that something worth having in itself? Or do we judge the value of that purely instrumentally? And that, I think, is where business ethics starts to, uh, starts to come in. Okay, so what do I mean by business ethics? Well, there's one main sense I'm going to concentrate on, so let me clear a couple of others. Okay, can I just ask for one clarification? What do, what do you mean when you say it's justified? <clears throat> okay, I meant... Uh, can you say, and, and I asked that because I was wondering if you yeah. say something about the quality of the types of beliefs that constitute that's, that's a very good philosophical question because I suppose what I meant was actually true rather than justified. So if you have a reputation which is, if you have a reputation for integrity, because you have integrity, that's what I meant by justified, right? right? But of course it could be that you had that you had a reputation for integrity which people were absolutely justified in accepting because you put such good evidence out there that you had integrity, when in fact you didn't. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I, did, I meant, I meant that true, true. <clears throat> okay, so sometimes when people talk about the ethics of a corporation, they just mean the general outlook of a corporation. Perhaps the values that it, that it holds. And often uh, these, these values might be uh, put more happily under the, the non-moral heading. So if we go back to Paula's talk, uh, she was saying that um, values have to meet certain criteria to count as ethical. Right? So if you're, you know, say, say, you're, say you're involved in Google and you think, um, what really matters about Google is that we be ruthlessly commercial. Okay. That, on the face of it, might not seem to be a moral value, but it could be seen to be part of the ethics of, of Google in this broad sense. So that's the first sense. second sense would be uh, a set of principles or the code that is meant to guide the employees uh, of the corporation. And of course, finally, business ethics can refer to an area of philosophical uh, inquiry, and that's what I'm going to be concentrating on. Well, I have, I've brought along, sort of tepid from the press, uh, the, the new Oxford handbook of business ethics, which, as you can see, is quite big. Uh, and I'll leave it uh, lying around for anybody who wants to have a look at it. I think it's rather interesting that if you look up reputation in the index of this book, there's nothing there. There's reparation, but there's nothing on reputation. Uh, now, the headings, there are various headings for the, for the articles. And I was thinking to myself, well, which of these headings might reputation come under? I thought it might come under competitive markets and corporate responsibility. Uh, the articles there are on capitalism, uh, the authority of managers, and corporate responsibility. I thought it might perhaps come under the heading of the use and protection of information, where we've got articles on deception, privacy, <coughs> insider trading, and intellectual property. Possibly incentives and influence. Under that, at the moment, we've got conflicts of interest, corruption and bribery, and business and politics, lobbying, that kind of thing. And then finally, in part nine, there's only one article in that, creating moral organisations. 
Um, there's, there's an article there about organizational integrity. So what I think is interesting is that on the face of it, it seems to me it's rather obvious that reputation is an ethical issue. In fact, it raises many ethical issues, which I hope maybe in the, in the break we'll be able to tease out a bit more. It's rather interesting that philosophers haven't really picked up on, on that. Okay, so very quickly I'm going to run through some of these doubts that people tend to express about business ethics and try to, um, try to defend business ethics a little bit. But the first big doubt people have is kind of just philosophical scepticism. Yeah, they'll say, yeah, you've said that there is this area of philosophy, business ethics, which is out to discover the principles that are meant to guide people's behaviour in business, but there aren't any. So it's all a waste of time. Now, scepticism takes different forms and uh, has a wider or a narrower scope and there are different arguments for it. <coughs> Here are three common forms that I've come across uh, in the sphere of business ethics. One is a kind of egoism about reasons for action. So Paula mentioned the idea of self-interest. It's still a very common view and it's still a very plausible view that the only reason that anybody has to do anything is that it advances their own self-interest in some way. At the other extreme from egoism, you've got moral views like utilitarianism, which homes in on what Paul was calling the consequences of actions. And it says, self-interest doesn't matter at all. You should be entirely impartial right, between your own good and the good of other people. And many people think that that view is really too demanding. Right, the idea that, that um, when you're living your life, you really should give no priority to yourself at all over other people seems, seems too demanding to many. So you might be tempted then to go for egoism. But in fact, egoism also seems rather hard to believe. So consider this case. Imagine that uh, you work for some company and you, um, you owe a certain amount of money to another company in the developing world, right? And you represent rather a big company, and this company in the developing world is rather small, it's got about sort of 20 employees or something. And you happen to know that this company in the developing world has a bit of a cash flow problem, and if they don't get the money from you in time, some people are going to be made unemployed. But, you know, there's going to be no... Um, Sanction, if you don't pay the money now, you could just sit on it for another 30 days uh, and let people become unemployed. Or you could go out, it is raining slightly, but you could go out now, post the cheque, or send the money by electronic transfer and make a difference. It seems to me kind of hard to believe that there's nothing to be said in favour of your doing that, uh, arising out of the effect that you're going to have on the lives of those people working for that company in the developing world. So even if you're allowed to give some priority to your own interests, the idea that you just don't take any account of the interests of others seems too extreme to me. Okay, so that's one form of scepticism. Uh, another one is based on the idea of cultural variation. So people say, well, if you think about ethics, uh, it's varied so much over time. Uh, different cultures have had all sorts of different views about um, yeah, how, how, we should, how we should live. 
and they still do. So, for example, for example, think about child labour. That, that's, that's an issue today on which there's a great deal of disagreement across the world. Some people think child labour is absolutely fine, been doing it for years, absolutely what we do here, and other people think it's outrageously exploitative. Okay, two responses to that. One is that there may be more homogeneity in ethical views than people are inclined to think. Okay, so it could be, if you've got two people arguing about child labour, it could be that they will actually agree on the principle that parents should do what's best for their children. And it just turns out that in some cases, unfortunately, what's best for the child will be uh, starting work in a factory at the age of eight. That's just the way things are. In other words, it's better for the child to be working in that factory at the age of eight than not working. And the other response is that just because there's disagreement across time and across space, doesn't mean there's no truth of the matter. Think about science. You know, scientists continue to disagree about many things, but they're not inclined to think that there's no facts in the matter just because they disagree. Final kind of skepticism is based on what I've called the scientific worldview. Okay, and this is the view that if you want to if you want to find out the truth about the world, ask scientists. Right? And if, if there's something that scientists can't tell you about because they don't use that language, then there's nothing to know. In other words, all truths about the world can be captured in the language of science. Uh, and this, this view really, I mean it's a very long-standing view, but in the 20th century it really emerged out of Vienna and the, the movement known as uh, logical positivism in the 1930s. One problem with logical positivism was this. The logical positivist said, if you make some statement and it can't be verified scientifically, then it's meaningless. Okay, so if you say, God is good, it's not that that's false, it's a meaningless statement because it can't be verified, it can't be tested empirically by science. Big problem with logical positivism is that it can't be tested by science. So it's self-undermining. And I think that's the problem with this kind of scepticism in general. So the sceptics will say, scientists tell us that there are no reasons for action. They've looked into their microscopes, and just, there are just little bits of matter flying around. There are no reasons for action. So saying that, saying that there are is kind of meaningless. Well, in doing that, these people are putting forward an argument. They're appealing to reasons for belief. Okay, they're trying to persuade you to believe something. Well, it's a very small move, actually, from the idea of reasons to believe to reasons to act. So that's a response to scepticism. Another common thing that people say is philosophy is too abstract. Business is about learning from experience. You, know, you're you go to business school, you practice the business for several years, and you gain an insight into the particular particularities of business which philosophy just can't engage with. Well, myself, I think the gap between philosophy and, as it were, real life isn't quite as large as some people uh, might think. So, imagine some case in which some employee 
of some business has gone to some country where, there's, where bribery is kind of standard and they're asked to engage in this practice. They might think to themselves, well, you know, I've been asked to, to pay this bribe, and what if everybody did that? It, it seems somehow wrong. And then they look around and they see that everybody is doing that. So they start thinking, well, everybody's doing that. What are the consequences of, of everybody's doing that? Let me, let me think about that. I mean, they're, they're, they're thinking in what Paula was calling, calling the deontological way, and they're thinking, what if everybody did that? And then they're moving to consequentialist thinking because they're thinking about the effects of their actions on the, on the world. They might also start thinking, well, I don't really want to be the kind of person who engages in this sort of practice. They're thinking about their own character. <clears throat> the philosophers are just kind of taking those ideas and running with them, it seems to me. There isn't, there isn't this divergence between theory and practice. But I do think that philosophers really do need to know what they're talking about. So just as in medical ethics, if you're writing about some issue, you really ought to know the medical background. I think it's the same with business. And I think business ethics has actually changed. If you look at philosophical business ethics, maybe 30 years ago, you just dip into journal of business ethics, you will find a lot of people just spouting from their armchairs. Right. Philosophers spouting from their armchairs. And business people spouting from theirs. Whereas now I think there's a lot more understanding, uh, as it were, on each side um, uh, about the other. Well, people say, okay, you know, philosophy may not be so abstract, but if you look at it, it's become very specialised. Right? In the 19th century, you had people like John Stuart Mill, who became MPs and engaged in public life, and in general, people listened to what he had to say, whereas now, philosophers have retreated into the academy, they're just talking to one another, the language they use is, they use is technical, and um, it's become a kind of glass bead game. It's got not, not, nothing really to offer to us in business. Okay, well, I think one response to that is that you know, even, if it's, even if it's true about contemporary philosophy, it's not really true about the books that people like John Stuart Mill and Aristotle and Hobbes and all these other great thinkers produced. But actually, I don't think it's even true of much contemporary um, business effort. And I hope that if you just dip into that book, you'll see what I mean. It's not a book that's overlaid with a huge amount of technicality or, or jargon. But I think it's fair to say that you know, when you do start thinking about these issues, the kinds of questions about motivation and reasons that Paula was mentioning, you will find, actually, that some philosophical distinctions, like, for those of you who come across it, the distinction between agent relativity and agent neutrality, may, may actually help in certain cases. But you don't need that kind of complexity to get into philosophical thinking in the first place. Okay, just to, uh, to wrap up, another very common objection that people make is this. Um, some corporations, some businesses, have their own ethicists. Okay, so some colleagues of mine have been employed by corporations like RTZ or uh, Shell as kind of ethical consultants. And one obvious worry about that is that what the conclusions that you'll end up with about what you should be doing in your business will depend on who you invite. 
right? So if you if you if you invite a, a Kantian, you're going to get a whole a whole set of sort of Kantian prescriptions about what you should do. If you invite a utilitarian, you're going to get a whole set of utilitarian prescriptions. If you invite an Aristotelian, you're going to get a whole load of stuff about virtue. And if you invite several people, they're all going to be disagreeing with one another, and you might think, well, what's the point? I mean, let's wait until the philosophers have worked it out, what we should do, and then we'll start listening to them when they've got, when they've got some kind of uh, consensus about, for example, rights. Well, one response to that is that there, I think there is quite a lot of substantive agreement among philosophers about certain things. So take, for example, client confidentiality. Right? I would say that most people working in business ethics would say that other things being equal, if you're entrusted with certain information by one of your clients on the understanding that you're going to keep that information confidential, then you should. Where the disagreement comes in is when you say, well, why should we do that? Then the Kantian and the utilitarian will give you uh, different answers. I think another thing to remember is that, for some reason, I don't know why, the reason is probably rather deep in our psyche, philosophers tend to like what you could call monistic positions. They like single answers to questions. Right? So, there aren't, so there's a whole bunch of people who are utilitarians. There's a whole bunch of people who are Kantians, and there's a whole bunch of people who are Aristotelians, there's a whole bunch of people who are contractarians. There aren't that many people around who, who are, are ready to say, well, maybe there's a little bit of truth in, in a number of these positions, and let's see if we can't put them together to make something a bit more coherent. So that's an approach I think well worth thinking about. As far as opting out goes, well, yes, there is always probably going to be some kind of disagreement at the theoretical level. But you can't, you can't really just opt out, because in acting, you are, as it were, already operating ethically. Even if you don't think about the moral aspect of your actions, it will be true that your actions have that aspect, and you can't really avoid it, uh, even by doing nothing. Uh, finally, even if you take the view that uh, there, there is such deep disagreement in, in ethics that we really have, you know, anybody who holds a particular view really ought to suspend judgment on that view. So say, you know, say you sit alone in your study reading Kant, and you have, you have this kind of uh, moment when you, you think, wow, Kant is right. It's amazing. I'll be a Kantian. Right? And then you go and you find that somebody else has had the same experience with Mill, and they're inclined to be utilitarian. You might think, well, Actually, there's no, there's no reason for thinking that I'm right and, and she's wrong, so I should suspend judgment on this. That, I don't think, needs to paralyse debate between the two of you, because I think often what's going on in philosophy is people, people kind of sound as if they're saying, uh, I've got to the top of the mountain, you know, I've seen the truth, and you guys are just down there on the slopes, I'm telling you what it looks like from up here. It kind of sounds as if they're doing that. What they're really doing is saying, from where I'm sitting, it looks like this. Right? And then there's no inconsistency, because there are obviously going to be different perspectives on problems, and different ways of looking at things. And I think what ethics is about is communicating the way things look from where you're sitting to other people, to see if you can't converge on some common point of view.